Hello everyone and welcome to the new episode of the Women Economics Initiative podcast in which we cover the latest research in gender economics and inspiring career paths of female and non-binary economists. I'm Jelena, coordinator of the events team at WE and your host this season. Today I'm joined by Nora Strecker, Ad Astra Fellow slash Assistant Professor at School of Economics at the University College Dublin. Her research interests focus on public finance, specifically personal income taxation, at the intersection of international trade, welfare economics, and political economy. In this episode, we will discuss her inspiring career path, and we will talk about the importance of mentoring. Dear Nora, welcome to the Women Economics Podcast. Hi, Yelena. Well, thank you for having me. I'm so thrilled to have you as a guest, and there are several reasons for that. Of course, one of the main reasons is I should let our audience know Nora was my mentor at the Women Economics Mentoring Program, and I have really developed a strong connection to Nora. I'm sure you will enjoy this episode as she's really outstanding. Nora, would you tell us a couple of uh, words about yourself such that our audience gets to know you a bit better? So I am a, a German and Swiss public finance economist. I did high school in the U.S., which is why where the accent's coming from. I then went to college and did my bachelor's and master's in New York and then moved back to Switzerland to pursue my PhD. I then did a postdoc with the supervisor that I had for my PhD, and then went sort of the traditional route of going on the job market and trying to find a job in academia, which is what led me to come to Dublin. I remember Dublin from the conference, and I really enjoyed it. And uh, so when I got the offer, it was a no-brainer to come to Dublin. <laughs> I mean, one can see that you're a citizen of the world. You have changed a couple of countries and... I think that this really influences people once you need to adapt your personality to adjust to new places and, and so on. Do you maybe recall a period or specific situation when you have made your decision to study economics? So when I started college in New York, I actually wanted to study international relations. Uh, that's the reason I went to New York because, you know, the UN is there, and I thought, you know, this is going to be really awesome. I'm going to be in this very international environment. And then I realized that it was really going to be very U.S.-focused, and I just really, it didn't really interest me anymore. But one of my, <laughs> uh, one of my favorite TV shows has an economist as a president, and I always had very high ambitions. <laughs> and so I decided, well, actually, let me just study economics. You know, let's see what that is about. And, I'd, you know, I'd taken economics in high school for one semester, but, you know, it didn't really leave much of an impression. And when I got to college, I knew I needed to major in something and decided economics was going to be it. So really inspired by a TV show, uh, <laughs> a story that my mother to this day will not let me live down. But I went to college and realized that all the classes that I took within economics, I've actually found them very difficult. They were never the, you know, I never had the best grades in economics. They were never the easiest ones on my schedule. And it, it still, you know, it, it still pursued me, right? I just, I didn't mind that it was hard. 
I actually enjoyed it. I enjoyed that it was difficult. And uh, yeah, so that's how I stayed in economics, despite the fact that they were never going to be my best grades. I just enjoyed it. This is one of the most interesting stories I've, I've heard so far. Maybe one takeaway for all of us to talk more to people who are teaching econ in high schools or maybe courses at universities to change some things and show people that it's actually super, super interesting and that it doesn't have to be as hard, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I just, I, I don't remember it really being a sort of conscious decision. I just sort of stumbled into it, but I always had in the back of my mind, oh yeah, well, this is, this is an area I could study. Yeah. And it was close enough to the things that I found interesting in politics and in philosophy that um, it sort of kept my interest. But I also think that we need to teach students and remember for ourselves that it's not a horrible thing if something is difficult, right? It's not a terrible thing to not have straight A's. It, it, it's terrible that this has become the norm that we expect people to only have straight A's and to have a perfect GPA. But if your passions aren't where you're going to get perfect grades, then that should be okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with that one. But now that I learned this about you and that you initially wanted to study something else, then for me it would be very natural if you maybe wanted to pursue career outside of academia after you finish your studies or even after your PhD. But there we have seen a shift. And do you remember that moment when you have realized, oh, I would like to stay in academia. Do you remember that moment? And when have you found love for both research and teaching? So I had, a, I already have a great affinity or had a great affinity for, for research when I did my master's. I finished my master's in 2010. So it was the height of sort of financial crises almost everywhere. And it was going to be very difficult to find a job in, you know, as an economist in the U.S. at the time. And I really didn't want to move back to California. And so um, I said, well, where else do I have relatives? I had relatives in Switzerland. And so I moved to Switzerland. You know, the crisis didn't really hit Switzerland that badly. So, I, you know, I knew I was going to find something there. Or rather, well, I really just hoped that I would find something. And when I then got there, I went on interviews in non-academic fields. Right? I interviewed with Ernst and Young. I interviewed with private companies, and nothing was really panning out. And I'd always had this thought in the back of my mind: Well, maybe I should try for a PhD. Right? I enjoy research. I enjoy that work, and you know, maybe that's something I could try. And when the position with my supervisor opened up, it was on taxation, which I'd always enjoyed as a, as, a, as a subject. And I just sort of applied on a whim. I didn't know him before. I didn't know ETH other than my dad used to work there uh, years and years ago, but I didn't know anything else. And I didn't have any academics in the family, right? My father has a PhD in math, but he's not an academic anymore. And so I didn't have a connection to that, but I ended up getting that position and Jen just loved the work. Even the really sort of 
boring bits where you have to work your way into the data and collect information and code everything. I found those parts really interesting. And when it then came to deciding whether I would do a postdoc or, um, you know, or leave academia, um, I actually interviewed with other companies. So I interviewed with the tax authority in Switzerland on whether or not I want to switch and didn't, and you know, they do research, but it didn't seem as though this would, this would be something where I could do the type of research that I wanted to do. And so I became a postdoc at the same chair where I did my PhD. And then when it came time to decide whether to go on the academic market or to find something else, I interviewed with Ernst & Young again to see if I maybe, you know, sort of find my exit that way. And again, some of the work was interesting and would have been, I would have been very happy to do that. But the other part of the work just really didn't seem like something I wanted to pursue. And we mutually decided that this was not going to be the best way forward. And so, you know, I tried to exit academia, academia several times and was unsuccessful each time. And so I ended up staying in academia and then went on the job market. Which is a whole another story, but uh, I really love it. Life has really given you signs that you should stay in academia, and I'm super glad you did, because otherwise I would have never met you. So that, <laughs> that, that's really amazing. I still think it's important to, um, to test whether you want to stay. Yeah. Right? That you should you know, interview with places that do similar things. Right. If you're working on taxation, interview with consulting firms that work on taxation or interview yeah. with non-academic, um, you know, places that do research on taxation. Absolutely. Just to see whether it is the subject and the yeah. work or whether it's really the environment that a university and academia provides you. And for me, it really was the environment. I think one should definitely know her or his options before really making the final decision. And it's equally valuable to know what you dislike. Those are super important lessons. Now that you also have uh, really lots of experience in academia, first as a student and now as a professor, uh, spending those couple of years uh, within the academic circle, do you notice that things are changing for better? especially when it comes to efforts to increase gender parity in academia? Have you noticed some good practices? So in general, I think the topic has gained more attention. I remember, you know, at the very beginning of my career, you'd still every once in a while hear sort of snide comments about, oh, you know, she only got that job because she's a woman and then you get a woman <sighs> in the department. And you hear that much less now, or maybe the people that would say that don't feel comfortable to say that loud anymore, which is <laughs> equally good. Yes. But there does seem to be a shift towards making a conscious effort to expand the participation of women in sort of the subject area and to make an effort to hire a diverse set of candidates. And so I think there is an effort on, you know, that universities are, are sort of engaging in, whether it's always as successful, that really is, you know, up for debate. But I think there is an increasing effort being made by universities, which is great, right? That's how, that's how it should be. 
I am the EDI person, so Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Chair at the School of Economics. And so for me, it's going to be one of the major tasks for the next couple of years to really make sure that we are expanding the scope for women and for female students at the school. I think there is great strides being made. They could always go further, but I think I think we're on the right path. Happy to hear that. Happy to hear that because I also share your opinion. And I think that even this podcast is here to further increase awareness and share some good practices for people who are willing to implement those at the places where they're working. When we were privately discussing, we also mentioned that we think um, that role models and mentors can be especially important to further improve situation with respect to this matter. What's your opinion on that, in a sense? Is it really that important? And we can we can then shift uh, our talk and talk really about mentoring in the next couple of minutes. I think it's absolutely important that we have role models for our own path, as well as provide role models for the next generation. I think it's it's difficult sometimes for people to see what potential they might have if they don't see anyone else doing it, right? It's always it's always harder to plow your own path than to follow somebody else. And, you know, some people are great at that. Some people don't need examples and they'll, you know, they'll just go their own way. And other people need those examples. And I think that's fine. And we need to accommodate both of that, right? We can't all be such massive individualists who just will go wherever we wherever our destination is regardless of the environment we need to provide a better environment for everybody else as well i think universities are more aware of that and they're trying to present better role models and to foster those role models along your way did you have role models or mentors that have especially encouraged you So I had really great role models within academia as academics, not so many that were women. In fact, all the, all the people that I would consider my mentors or my advisors on my path have been men. And I don't think that's necessarily bad. I don't think that, you know, women should only be advised by other women. I think that's, you know, that's nonsense. I think you can get your, you can get valuable advice from anyone. But it is the case that I've never had a female mentor. I've never had someone that I would really turn to for, you know, a, a large sort of life decision and ask them, well, you know, what should I really do? You know, I, I used to turn to my brother or I used to turn to my supervisor or, you know, all, all my letter writers when I was on the market were all men. And I, I don't know whether that's just because I mainly know men. <laughs> Or whether this really is a sign that there isn't uh, the representation that we need. I think it's a bit of both, right? That my field or my um, my environment was more limited when it comes to that. Now, that's not to say that I don't know great women academics. I just didn't have that type of relationship with them where I could go to them for advice, which is the other problem, right? If we don't feel comfortable turning to someone for advice, we're not going to. And so finding that, you know, that, that mentoring relationship is actually quite 
you know, on the one hand, it's quite difficult. Being a good mentor is hard. I hear two stories or see two stories. One is finding your mentor and your role model in your surrounding. So let's say at your university, at your institution. And the other one is, you know, some other people out there uh, to whom you look up to. But then how do you establish or do you even establish relationships with them? So maybe we can talk first about how to find a mentor within your university. And then we can follow up with uh, the next the next story. So if you have a professor that you know has taught you or that you've encountered during seminars or during coffee talks and you value their input and you think that they might have good advice to offer, just approach them and say, hey, um, I'm looking for a more informal advisor or I'm looking for a co-supervisor for my thesis or you're really just looking for general help and support. Um, talk to them. Go up to them. I, I, I don't think that there are going to be many academics who would say, no, 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 I don't want to talk to you. And, you know, if they were like that, you wouldn't think that their, that their input would be that valuable because they wouldn't have offered any. And so I think being more open to just approaching people to say, hey, um, I have this big thing that I wanted that I'm working on or I have this big question for my future that I'm thinking about and I'd like, I'd value your input. I think that's a great opener. Or if just talking to as many people as you can. If you're lucky enough that your department is quite big and you get international speakers or just, you know, speakers from other universities that come to your university to talk, set up for a meeting. Talk to them about research. If you think their career trajectory has been impressive and you would love to emulate that, ask them how they got there. You know, ask them what steps they took and and what made them think of doing that and maybe take that as inspiration for yourself. I actually enjoyed a lot uh, those opportunities. And I, I have to admit, I was encouraged by you during our mentoring program to talk to people who are visiting us or people who have received some prizes and were giving talks and then were giving one-to-one meetings. And those talks can be super, super inspiring. Maybe that can be one takeaway for people not to be shy Because on average, I would say that people in academia are really willing to talk and you should always give it a try if the answer is no. I mean, that's the worst thing that can happen, but uh, it's not the end of the world. So is that maybe one of the ways one can actually find people who are not from their immediate university? Well, this would be the easiest way, right? If they come to you, if they come to your university there and, and don't feel the need that you have to have, you know, a set of questions prepared. Like I remember going, so giving one of those one-on-one talks and somebody came in with like a list of questions that they wanted to ask me. And I was like, I was very, I was both impressed and slightly intimidated uh, that, you know, they had so many questions that they wanted to ask me. Or don't feel the need that you need to have your paper fully done to show it to them. Some of us actually just want to talk about the weather or talk about what life is like in wherever they are, or just talk about your, your, you know, your plans and your research and a conversation will, will happen. We're all sort of human beings first, and it's actually quite easy to talk to most academics. Getting over that initial shyness is really important. I'm not saying that you have to change your entire personality, but and if you have an advisor or a mentor that just says, oh, okay, oh, this person's coming to your department. Fantastic, go make a meeting. Um, the alternative is if you're really looking for a mentor and you, know, you don't have a department where people are visiting quite often, I would almost say do what, do what Yelena does 
because she just sent me a direct message on Twitter the first time we met. If you think maybe that person will be willing to talk to you, send them a message, send them an email. The alternative would also be signing up for something like the mentorship programs that different associations have now put forward. Women in Economics Initiative has one mentorship program. In Ireland, we have a similar association of women economists, and they're also putting together a mentorship program. So I think participating in those is fantastic, especially if you don't have the, the type of environment where you think you're going to get all that support. The only thing I can say is I, I really, really fully, fully agree. And I, I can share my own experience and say that I really enjoyed the mentoring program at WE, that I'm sure that all other mentoring programs that are out there really do uh, have similar impact. If you uh, agree, maybe we can share some of the good practices uh, the two of us had uh, in the last 10 months uh, when we were when I was a mentee and you were my mentor. Uh, because when we were talking to some other people, other mentees and mentors, we realized that, okay, maybe we, we formed this great connection because we have done some things a bit differently. We apparently thought those things were normal and everyone would, would do them. But apparently it seems that we kind of developed some, some good practices that I'm definitely going to take away with me and maybe we can we can start with some good practices we developed over the last uh, 10 months. So let's think about this way. If you have a particular set of questions or a big question that, you know, is going to come towards you in your life, like what career path should I follow or, you know, should I stay in academia? If you have those big questions and you just need to talk it out, by all means, just have conversations with your mentor. They'll be willing to give advice and to give you their perspective on and, and how, you know their input on how they've done it. Yelena and I, what we did actually is more sort of we set up um, like deadlines and to do lists for each other. I remember one of our first meetings. You told me that you wanted to talk about and sort of use the mentoring sessions as how to prepare your yourself and and your and how to plan your, you know, the next few years of your life in order to prepare yourself for the job market. And so we kind of broke it down into sort of smaller steps, right? Uh, first thing I did is I basically then took my big chunk of to-do things and I had to go talk to people in my department and ask them what's important for, you know, a job, a job candidate that if you're, what are you looking at when you hire them? And, you know, I got a list of things that people that are on our hiring committees think are important, which I then basically brought back to you. And then we broke it down of, okay, one thing that's really important is to talk about planning, when to go to conferences, when to do a semester abroad, for example, you know, if that's something that you really want to do that needs to be planned so that you're not going abroad in the last semester before you go on the job market and, you know, you're suddenly scrambling to get everything ready because you want to be able to enjoy your semester abroad. You want to be able to make connections without having to struggle to get all your applications out on time. Planning for that at the beginning is actually really helpful. And the other things is stuff like, you know, how to write research statements or how to write, uh, you know, letters, how to set up a website, how to get yourself ready by going and talking to people. And so we sort of talked about um, all those different steps, all the things that, you know, are relevant 
as you know, you sort of make your way through your PhD studies and getting yourself towards the finish line. As simple as that. For us, it was natural and it worked really super well because we knew what the call was and we set our goal at our first meeting. And then, as you said, we created a to-do list and each meeting was devoted to another topic, which I think can be very useful as we never ran out of ideas about what to talk. I mean, of course, we could always chit-chat about weather and how do we feel, what's happening in our life, but we also wanted to really still keep it professional and use every meeting to learn something new. And I think that that's one of the ways how to keep yourself motivated to participate, to really build that relationship, to be consistent, not to skip meetings, because you always know, okay, next time when we meet, she will tell me how one's website should look like, and we will discuss why is it important to have one, or is it important? And so for me, it was super, super motivating that I always knew what's our next topic for our next meeting. I could prepare, I could think of questions in advance. And of course, whenever we, we discussed, I was always super, super thankful for all the input you have given me because about most of the things, you, you cannot easily find those kind of infos on the internet. I was actually learning from your experience, learning from your opinions, and that's not easily Googleable and not easily found. So that's our recipe for successful mentoring relationship and hopefully will serve other people in the future. Yeah, and I think at the end of the day, you know, it's a little bit like the relationship that you might have with your advisor. You meet, you set up a couple of goalposts for the next meeting, and essentially you're doing the same thing here. Now, obviously, we're not working on papers together. We're working on similar topics, but we're not working in the same direction. We're not talking about research. We're talking about sort of the stuff that surrounds research. And I think very often, if you're talking to, you know, your advisor, you're very focused on the research component of being a PhD student. And then all this other stuff, it might get mentioned or it might come up, but it's not the focus of the conversation. And sometimes you don't feel comfortable talking to your advisor about this sort of stuff. You might be worried about what they would think if you're already talking about, oh, well, when should I be doing a semester abroad? that might feel like, oh, well, you're already planning to leave. What is, you know, what's going on? But I think, you know, those questions are something, especially if you're, if you're a planner, right? If you like to plan your life in advance, at least a couple of years ahead, you want to talk about that. You want to get it off your chest. You want to have talked about it with somebody. If you feel like you can't do that with your advisor, talk about that with somebody else. And I also have to admit that having you as someone who is completely far away from here, not at my uni, even gave me more freedom to, to be honest, to be very open about some difficulties I'm having because uh, I really could tell you anything that I had on my chest and not worry that that would leak out to some people. So yeah. And actually, so anyone that sets up a mentoring program will tell you it's actually really important that the mentors aren't within your hierarchy or anywhere near your hierarchy. Lots of institutions have mentoring programs within the university or within the department, and it's very valuable. But some questions you just don't ask. 
you don't ask questions of, oh, should I be going elsewhere for you know my next stage? Should I be applying outside of this university? Or if you have a problem with your advisor, you don't want to ask a professor that knows your advisor. I can only testify how you have taught me so, so much. And thanks to you, I even have my own website. I attended my first conference. A couple of more conferences are coming up. You encouraged me to talk to other researchers. Well, I was thinking, what do I have to offer? I'm just a first year PhD student. Why would people talk to me? And then Nora came in. No, you should not think like that. Listen to me. Absolutely. And so similar to when you and your advisor might set up a time to go and sit down and talk about the projects that are ongoing, the status of your research, of your studies, similar with a mentor, right? You set a time, you block out that time frame. you don't answer emails, you don't look at your phone, you don't do anything else. You're just focused on the conversation. And in general, this is something we should be doing more often, right? That we sort of take the time to really think and talk these things through. I greatly benefited from those conversations myself because I could find some of the nuggets that I was trying to share. I could bring those back and remind myself, yeah, you know, that's actually why I enjoy talking to students. And that's why I enjoy talking to different speakers that are coming and renew my own efforts. So I can only conclude that it was a really rewarding experience for both of us and that we will carry it forward in different forms, in different ways. But I know that I will definitely cherish it really for the rest of my life. It might sound cheesy, but it is really like that. Um, there are no words really to describe what kind of confidence and boost in my self-esteem I got, despite the fact I was super, super honest and at times felt super vulnerable because I, I shared super private information about myself but it was it was great having someone with whom I can share that. I think that's super rare and one more reason to be extremely grateful for the opportunity. Maybe to close off our conversation, I, I like to ask my guests to give us a recommendation of a book or a podcast such that our audience gets even one more benefit from the conversation. So I'm one of those people that hoards books that sort of have piles of books that I have bought to read at some point and I haven't read yet. But I recently started The Six Faces of Globalization, Who Wins, Who Loses, and Why It Matters, written by Anthea Roberts and Nicholas Lamp. And it essentially looks at the different perspectives that different interest groups have on globalization, right? And you know, how these are connected. And so you know, I finally, finally cracked it, started in on it. Um, and so far, it's a great read. Awesome. Thanks a lot for your recommendation. And of course, thank you so much for being my guest today. I truly enjoyed the conversation with you. Thanks to all for listening to us. And I hope we'll talk to Nora one more time in the future. Absolutely. The views expressed in WE podcasts are those of the interviewers and the guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinion of the organization, its partners, other members, or any other affiliated people and organizations. We'd also like to thank Maddie Stevenson for writing and recording our original theme song. For anyone who would like to learn more about the Women in Economics Initiative, please find us online as well as on most social media channels.